You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week, as always, is Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. And stepping in for Jeff with us again is Ben Munson. How you doing, Ben? I'm good, thanks. It's good to see you again. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get started, every week we take the five most popular stories on our websites, manufacturing.net and industrial equipment news, and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. But please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Ben, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter or subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you can join us when we do this live every Thursday. Well, I already said hi, Ben, but how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to be nice. Yeah, that's cool. Anna, how are you doing today? Uh, Good. I like how you said good to see you to Ben as if you don't see him like already every day i mean people yeah. outside our desks are facing each other yeah <laughs> people outside welcome back ben of the podcast don't know that like at every yeah. moment our eyes are in some way directly staring at each other <laughs> just like we I make up, yeah we make a lot of icons yeah and it is it's just like i'll look up from my monitor i'll be like is he is he looking at me is he looking out the window and how how long has he been looking yeah, it's at a me? lot of like yeah 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 <laughs> Is he, and then you do the like, uh, are you trying to communicate? So we'll take the like, I'll take the earbuds out or I'll take your headphones off. And it's like, what? Yeah. Oh, oh no. All right. All right. <laughs> but yes, no. Uh, good to see you in the podcast, in the studio. In general. In general. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, now that we've had such a seamless start to this baby, <laughs> let's uh, throw it to our sponsor. huh? <laughs> Hi, I'm David Manti with Industrial Equipment News. Selecting the right hoses to keep your workers safe and facilities operational is crucial, but not all hoses are created equal. So to help us work it out, Doug Nordstrom, hose product manager at Swagelock, is going to help us figure it out. Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Central, please join us live. So Doug, give us a little bit of what people could expect to learn from this webinar in May. Yeah, so we always want to make sure we educate our hose users to select the right hose for a job uh, because an improperly selected hose can be very dangerous for operators, people around the hose. It can lead to excessive downtime and can be a source of of excessive cost for a particular operation. Well, we certainly don't want that. So please register now to join us live Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Central. We'll see you there. And we're back. And just a reminder to join us on Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. for Mastering Hose Selection in Your Facility, a new live video podcast. Register now. Join Doug and I. It's going to be a great time, and I'm already encouraged by the numbers. So thank you to those who have already registered. Our first story this week, Public Outcry Gets Packaging Plant Proposal Withdrawn. Corrugated packaging manufacturer Psychopack USA has withdrawn a proposal for a factory in Greenwood, Indiana. The site plan included rezoning more than 42 acres of residential land. 
Some residents pushed back and created a petition signed by more than 115 residents who said they don't want the land to become industrial. Saika was going to invest $100 million to build a 390,000 square foot facility. The facility would have created 100 full-time workers making corrugated boxes with average hourly wages of nearly $40, and it was $39.86 an hour. So these were decent, high-paying jobs. That's, the company said, no thank you. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, the community said no thank you. The community said no thank you. And I think, um, you know, a lot of us who work in this industry, our first instinct is to be like, hey, wait, what's going on here? Uh, when you see this kind of uh, situation where a plant is so abruptly rebuffed. But um, my first question, I think this one's a little bit different. I looked through uh, the original story on this. Um, and uh, my first question when, when reading this article was, I they, it appears they chose attractive land that's already zoned for residential use. Mm-hmm. And they would have to have it rezoned as industrial. It's described as having residential uh, communities kind of bordering it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't know. I agree that industrial buildings need to exist in the communities where they reside benefit from those jobs, especially these very high paying jobs. But at the same time, these communities, I think, or I'm sorry, these companies need to work hand in hand with the communities. You can't bring like a take or leave it approach and expect that you're going to have a smooth incorporation of your facility within this community. And I think people generally come down hard on what they see as like NIMBY stuff, not in my backyard. Mm hmm that type of objection, but people have many reasons why they wouldn't want this in their residential neighborhood. I mean, traffic and light pollution were mentioned, actual pollution. I think, you know, paper mills have a particular smell to them. And I know this isn't necessarily a mill, but it was described as also being a waste management and recovery operation. Mm -hmm. So it could be water intensive. It could be smelly. It could be loud. People don't know. That's the thing. And I think they're worried about their quality of life. They're worried about their property value. Um, And I don't think it's too much to ask to say, move it down the road where there is actual industrial zone sites already. Mm -hmm. Because, um, I mean, I don't know. I just think these manufacturing projects are going to continue to get a bad rap if we characterize them in this sort of all or nothing. If you don't support every project as it's presented to you, then you don't support American manufacturing kind of deal. I don't think it has to be that way, right? Um, Just like any business project, a lot of things need to be lined up. I mean... People object to all kinds of proposals, not just manufacturing, like ask Walmart if they get a, you know, an easy yes every time they try to build a store, you know, or Dollar General, or um, I don't think they're really getting like handed the keys to the city every time they want to build, you know, people just object for many reasons and that's just expected, right? So obviously this, uh, this company, they saw this, they didn't want to pursue any further discussion around it and just decided that they were going to, you know, pick up their ball and, and walk home maybe maybe but i mean but maybe they'll just resubmit a new plan down the road where they're zoned for industrial i don't know i don't think that is maybe out of the question they didn't say it was so no the attorney for the company said that um they were still considering next steps for the project so i don't think the project is dead maybe they do go to the community trying to get a little bit more feedback to see what they would be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I did notice is this is all really recently developed land. Like Mm -hmm. this all used to be farmland very recently. And uh, you can see there, you know, at the, uh, where this road sort of tees, uh, there's a new subdivision on one side in one, uh, on one corner. There's a new subdivision on the other kind of right next to where this facility would go. 
And then on the other side, it looks like where they're going to put more housing. Mm -hmm. So, Ben, what were your thoughts uh, when it came to this? Sorry, not paper mill, but corrugated packaging manufacturing plant. Sure. Yeah, I think um, Anna mentioned a lot of good points that and I think the residents raised these uh, concerns as well. And, um, you know, maybe promising just promising not to run a paper mill isn't quite enough. Yeah, like that's. That should be, you know, step one. But I think uh, Donna Zellner, who is a local real estate agent who was mentioned in this story, uh, she also raised a good point about the potential future for the site. Like once it's built and zoned as industrial, there's no guarantee that this um, uh, corrugated cardboard facility is going to, you know, stay there forever. Mm -hmm. So who knows uh, what might move in, you know, further down the road. Right. And they may not be willing to make concessions either but um i I looked into it and there have been a lot of instances where industrial facilities are able to kind of live in harmony with nearby uh residential areas i was reading about a case study uh last year about uh, a development off i-55 near chicago okay uh and the developers worked with the nearby neighbors to address concerns and came up with a design that kind of effectively hid the trucks and mm-hmm. the loading docks oh, okay. near the okay. center of the development. Okay. So all the buildings were front facing out. Yeah. And and they also built a uh, 12 foot berm, which was okay. kind of a new word for yeah. me. Berm. berm. It's a it's a little hill. Yeah. Made hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the solution to like the noise and the light pollution. So yeah. it could be that this space in this case wasn't big enough to kind of facilitate all these, you know, uh, Could measures a, kind of all these mitigation measures, but yeah. it it can be done. It yeah. seems like mm-hmm. they couldn't build a big enough berm to satisfy Donna Zellner. Yeah, um, <laughs> not enough berm. <laughs> um, no, you raise a really good point, and you know it struck it struck me as well that uh, uh, Miss Zellner is also a real estate agent who does live across the street. And she says that the land should at least stay residential. Ideally, she would like it to stay farmland, but I mean. Everyone would like it to stay farmland, Mm -hmm. except for developers. But I mean, she is also a real estate agent Mm -hmm. who would like to sell residences that could possibly be built there. So, I mean, that could be a missed opportunity for her as well. So, I mean, I took what she was saying with a grain of salt. Um, She was definitely concerned about the size of the facility as well as the proximity, like we said. Um, And she, but she did admit that that land is going to be developed one day. Uh, She says it should never be industrial, but uh, I think to all of our points, if you can find a good industrial partner, uh, it could be it could be all right. Like, uh, but I mean, Ben, you raise a really good point about once it is kind of zoned industrial, that land is kind of s- not stuck there, but it's hard to reverse. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen um, in Wisconsin how everything Foxconn related was purchased and rezoned. And then once Foxconn fell through, they still owned this industrial zoned land which could actually, you know, right now, what are they? Uh, they're courting Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like there was any going back. You yeah. Know? Well, like, and you may not be able to be a selective if you have a vacated yeah. plant or something right there, right? So, mm-hmm. Like we have a pretty cool newish library on mm-hmm. my side of town. Yeah. But that space was, used to be a fertilizer factory. Yeah, it was a blight. And it took forever to rezone it. Yeah. Like they had to, um, you know, basically scoop up the dirt, move it elsewhere, yeah. bring mm-hmm. back... Uh, you know, luckily, <laughs> luckily, there's lots of uh, farmland that wants fertilizer dirt. You yeah, know, but yeah, you can't <laughs> you can't just set people on top of there. It takes 
a lot of doing to turn an industrial zone back into a residential zone. Yeah, it was definitely, I didn't go to the library at first in that side of town because it was, uh, I'm like, wait a second, they took two inches of dirt and like now it won't poison my kids? Great. Looks like a good <laughs> a good spot for our community. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, it doesn't matter the size of the community, you can push back. And it's just a good reminder that, I mean, this was a contention of people that was, what, 115 people that mm-hmm. signed this thing? Yep. Mm-hmm. The population of this of Greenwood alone is like 65,000. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly like an overwhelming majority of people mm-hmm. saying no. Um, you know, I wanted to get a couple of normal Jeff points out there. So uh, Greenwood has a labor force of about 30,000 people, and the unemployment rate is 2.6%, which is below the national average. So, you know, maybe... While these were high paying jobs, maybe there's not a lot of people right there desperate for work. They don't need them or they, they feel they don't need them now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's my my Jeff fact of the story. Are you going to drop a Jeff fact in every story? I was planning on it and I just ran out of time. Oh, okay. So first thing I cut. I feel bad. I'm in Jeff's spot, but I have zero Jeff facts. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe they'll come up as we go. Yeah. Just yeah. like spur of the moment Jeff facts. All yeah. right. Jeff facts and isms. All right. Our next most popular story this week. Generac to pay $15.8 million penalty for amputations. Generac Power Systems last week agreed to pay $15.8 million in a civil penalty over its portable generators. The Wisconsin manufacturer failed to immediately report a product hazard. Between, Between 2018 and 2020, the company received reports of the portable generator's unlocked handle partially amputating... Um, people's fingers and crushing their fingers as well. The accidents happened while consumers were trying to move the portable generators. This was a issue with the unlocked handle. According to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, five finger, amp- five finger amputations occurred before the company filed a report. The company received eight reports of injuries by the time of the July 2021 recall, which covers more than 321,000 units made both in the U.S. and China. And I apologize for my stumble. My computer turned black in the middle of it. <laughs> but uh, this was uh, this was particularly of interest to us in the office because this is a Wisconsin manufacturer. You know, mm-hmm. this is in our backyard. But it also seems like such a long time passed before they kind of moved on anything. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little bit scary to read. Um And I know there are people out there and even comments on our own website um, included who see this as an issue of personal risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one person said something along the lines of you can't idiot proof everything. Yeah. Um, But I just want to clarify here that this was classified as a flaw Mm -hmm. um, in the design. When an issue like this recurs repeatedly and when a consumer product has a design feature or maybe a design error that allows the user to be grotesquely injured while in use of said product. Mm-hmm. That's a problem with me. I don't know about you guys. I, yeah, <laughs> I, that is a problem. Right, like I know that people need to re- be responsible and be careful, but they also need to be informed. And in this case, therein lies the problem. Generac was informed of multiple cases as you said, where the unlocked handle was causing this to occur. And, um, and they failed to report that in a timely manner. And so I think the common sense way to look at that is that they could have saved some customers from dismemberment but they didn't because Mm -hmm. they chose not to act and so if you think that's an issue of idiot proofing then please 
see the way the Consumer Product Safety Commission characterized this design. They called it a defect. They said it created an unreasonable risk of serious injury to consumers. That's different, Mm -hmm. right? This is like not just assuming that you can trust people to not brush their teeth with a brick. That's like, like, this is a design flaw that people who are like reasonably using or transporting this product are not expecting and they're not warned against. So obviously Generac was in the wrong here. In my opinion, I just, uh, this was, this was a problem with their product. It should have been recalled. Um, and they should have, uh, you know, reported these incidents much, much sooner than they did. So people who have been listening to the podcast for a while know that last year I had a severe power outage that like, Threatened to spoil everything in my house. Um, I bought a generator with a problematic handle. And I just want to say that it's not, uh, it's very simple to pinch yourself in this handle Mm -hmm. because uh, how the handle sort of disengage or like uh, comes out, the uh, generator is so heavy that when you go to lift it, when the handle swings around, like it's so heavy that it kind of drops, which would cause like an, like, and it happened to me where, uh, my finger didn't get caught in, in it, but when it popped down, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that was close. You know, <laughs> like, uh, it was, it was a whisper of a pinch where it just gets you, but it like, uh, you skate. Um, so, you know, I commiserate with people. I, it was nothing that I ever thought of. Oh, this should be a recall. I did think like, maybe I should have looked at the handle a little bit more, but you should reasonably expect that a handle that you use to carry or pull something mm-hmm. isn't going to chop your finger off. I mean, Munson, that's. Ben, that's not too much to ask, right? Right. If something has a handle and you go to pick it up by the handle, that's normal use. That's yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, that's not like a, a risky maneuver. I think no. on most on most products. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that's like idiot proofing it either. Like, if you see a handle, you should expect to be able to grab it mm-hmm. without. Oh, uh, and Jesse. Thank you for watching us live. She says she doesn't want a mangled manty. Nobody <laughs> wants that. I'm mangled enough already. Um, anyway, so yes, reasonable expectations of being able to use a handle. So the handle folds down, yeah. uh, and then when you lift it, it can be locked into place, right? Correct. Is there a real reason for it to fold down? Is it just kind of a, a storage. aesthetic? No, well, it is definitely for storage. Like, I mean, because the handle kind of swings out and adds like anywhere from like like two plus feet. Oh, okay. So, you know, trying to get it into my shed, that thing needs to come down in order to really like uh, uh, fit in the shed nicely. Okay. But again, <laughs> Seth is watching hashtag keep Manti pretty. <laughs> that one's a reach. Don't see that one trending, Seth. Um, but yeah, so uh, it is a pretty straightforward latch. Um, so that way it, it kind of like engages, disengages, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, this isn't really a case of the, of over engineering then, which um, I was going to talk about. Um, I guess I still will. Uh, yeah. But uh, last year, the Consumer Product Safety Commission they uh, uh, issued or they reported a baby stroller recall mm. after a child had the tip of their finger amputated by the stroller's disc brakes, which are behind oh. the, the back wheels. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you guys think that that's maybe a case of over engineering, like. How fast is this stroller going that you need like disc brakes on it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and then maybe that because they because that's the way it was built. That's yeah. that's why this happened. It created an unnecessary hazard. Mm-hmm. No, it it could. But when it comes to over engineering, I would think that any reasonable engineer would think like, okay, when this handle swings up, if it is propped up, you know, because there are the handles on one side and the wheels are on another side, or like you would, it stands to reason that this would be propped up 
when you engage the handle. So when it swings up, it would kind of drop the weight mm -hmm. of it, causing that kind of pinch point. Mm -hmm. I was, I guess, personally, I was surprised that engineers missed that. So not enough testing, in your opinion, guys? Yeah, it doesn't seem like enough testing or or just not effective testing. Yeah. Or, I mean, or it was just, I, I don't know, uh, overlooked. I mean, this is 32 models of both uh, Generac and uh, another brand, DR, the 6,500-watt uh, and eighty or 8,000-watt portable generators that had this defect. And I mean, I get it. It's costly. But you also know that you have hundreds of thousands of these units in the field. And don't you feel a responsibility to protect your customers, but also to protect your brand? Mm -hmm. I mean, like this brand, like uh, Generac is like the gold standard when it comes to generators. Right. Um, and I just uh, I don't, wouldn't say this has done irreparable harm, but it's an incredible penalty. Um, Anna, to your point, these injuries required hospitalization, surgery, uh, resulted in permanent disfigurement. And other than the fine, the company basically gets three years of probation. And they got to make sure that they're in compliance with the Consumer Product Act. Now, I don't know if you guys remember about 17 weeks ago, Recovered a Recall. <laughs> Do you guys remember the name Commissioner Peter Feldman? By any chance, Seven, he, 17 weeks 17 ago, 17 weeks ago, perhaps most precisely, um, we were discussing the problems with Peloton's $19 million penalty mm -hmm. um, when it came to the recall of treadmills, I believe. And Feldman's biggest issue was that, you know, there's such a discrepancy. There's not a real uh, equation for how these civil penalties come out. Right. So obviously... He took issue with this one as well. Uh, previously with Peloton, they got the $19 million penalty. He compared it to a um, Vornado Air $7.5 million penalty. And it, as it's specific to the Generac um, penalty, he's talking about these were two situations where the recalls didn't happen even though people died. So Feldman kind of begrudgingly accepted the penalty for Generac. And mostly he said that was because the company agreed to it. However, he used the opportunity to reinforce his concerns over the commission's lack of consistent ways of calculating penalty amounts. And I kind of agree with him on this point because mm -hmm. he stresses that Generac is a first-time offender. No one died, which, I mean, I understand. Like, uh, But, I mean, if we're looking at this from like a pen uh, OSHA penalty aspect, we're talking about a finger, not a human, like losing your life. Um, and I, I sort of agree with him that the penalty does seem really high comparatively, mm -hmm. and that there does need to be a better way of calculating these penalties. Uh, his quote was, a reasonable reading of the evidence in this case could support a conclusion that the initial reporting delay was born out of a failure to appreciate the nature of the hazard rather than concealing the problem from the CPSC. So they're getting penalized like some other people did by kind of hiding the problem mm -hmm. rather than they kind of maybe just didn't take it seriously enough. Not that there's, I mean, not that there's a huge difference in that, I guess. Well, one is willful and one is not. Yeah. I mean, and that is a factor in safety violation fines. Yeah. So. Right. I think it's fair. Um, Generac delayed reporting, which is why the civil penalty is appropriate here, according to Feldman. But again, he's concerned that by applying a near maximum penalty in this case with these facts, the commission is missing an opportunity to speak with clarity about what conduct, uh, what conduct it considers to be the most egregious. And Ben, he makes good point that this just adds confusion. And part of it is that is the size of the company, right? Like sure. 
the penalty is so large because Generac is such a massive company. But there is a little bit of a discrepancy there. Right. And so... Yeah, Anna, you mentioned one is willful and one is not, right? Um, and potentially, I, we don't potentially, know. Potentially, right yeah, but it, it kind of raises a good point. Like if you if you don't appreciate, you know, somebody's fingers getting chopped off or smashed, or uh, I think there's a multiple different injuries that were mm-hmm. happening uh, with this product. Like, how far can you go with serious injuries that you don't appreciate the the severity of? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a fair point as well. Um, I, I, it's hard to know too if like I know like maybe more transparency sounds like the answer, but at the same time, like maybe <laughs> sounds crazy maybe to say, but like maybe if there isn't as much transparency, people just assume like, hey, let's take the safest course of action here because we could get a huge fine maybe yeah. instead of like looking at right. it and trying to look at the, like oh this is just a low, lower tier offense like yeah. it's not that big of a deal I don't know I'm trying to yeah understand the the logic like no. I've never I've never had my fingers crushed so I guess I can't understand the severity of it that's not how I feel about it I think I that is true about me I've never had my fingers crushed but I I can accept that that's a bad thing. You don't want yeah, that. Yeah, no, I mean, you don't want that we, right. it's not like we're wishing that upon you. Just like, well, he's got to learn some things. But uh, I mean. Idiot. There, <laughs> there were probably steps in like uh, Peloton and the uh, Vornado Air incidents where like there probably were progressively worse injuries, you know? And so at some point a company has to be like, okay, yeah, we're talking about five fingers here out of more than 300,000 generators out there. But this is a real problem. So maybe it's an internal thing. And for as much trouble as we give OSHA for not having larger uh, larger fines, mm-hmm. at least it is it is down to the amount of like everything has a value. Like uh, all the way down to, you know, when my brother lost part of his thumb at work, like that very specific amount of thumb had a value um, that kind of figured into the... Um, uh, like violations and what the, what it was worth. So I understand uh, Commissioner Feldman in this particular case wanting a little bit more clarity in terms of like, I don't know, they said they'd pay 15 million. So we said, let's find them 15 million. Anyway, all right. You have an anecdote for like everything. It's like- You live a lot of life in 40 years. Yeah, you're like the Kaiser Soze of this podcast. You're just <laughs> looking around, get, coming up with ideas. Uh, well, I mean- <laughs> So in this one in particular, I have the generator and my brother lost a piece once. I, I apologize. Uh, no, I yeah. <laughs> he lost part of his thumb. Yeah, it was a uh, it was an accident at work. But uh, that sucks. It it sucks. does. It does. Yeah. And, uh, if you're out there, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, the last time my brother watches this aside, let's get to our next most popular story. Boeing fronts Spirit Cash for fuselage fix. Last month, a part problem forced Boeing to delay a, quote, significant number of 737 MAX planes. If you recall, Spirit Aerosystems used a, quote, non-standard manufacturing process to install fittings toward the back of the planes. The Wichita Business Journal recently reported that Boeing doesn't plan to leave Spirit high and dry. On a recent earnings call, Boeing CEO David Calhoun called the problem a, quote, gnarly defect that is nearly impossible to spot after assembly. Boeing, Spirit, and the FAA are working together on a fix. Boeing plans to help out its partner, including, as we said, fronting a now-specified amount of cash. It worked out to, what, 
$180 million. More on that later. The fix should take, or, or the fix shouldn't take too long, but uh, many of the aircraft that were in production will be easier to fix than those in service, which are hundreds. Um, Anna, your take on this issue between Spirit Aerosystems and Boeing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's clear that Boeing has a vested interest in keeping Spirit in business at this time. Yeah. Um, Barron's even referred to Spirit, and I saw this a couple places elsewhere, as too big to fail, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite expression. <laughs> um, and I think that, of course, applies to how these companies are just hopelessly intertwined. Boeing and Airbus to some extent, but mostly Boeing, um, really can't untangle itself from Spirit to the point where some industry insiders are posing the question of whether Boeing should buy Spirit back. Mm. Um, so let's back up a, a, a bit. Um, uh, the Air Current, um, uh, an aerospace uh, online publication, recently published a report on the strained relationship between these two companies, citing one source who called the 2005 divestiture of Spirit by Boeing the highest misstep in the company's history. Wow. Um, that said, Boeing hasn't um, announced any plans to make an offer, though there's been a lot of speculation about this. In fact, um, somebody asked the CEO of Spirit uh, about this, like, well, if Boeing wanted to buy you, you know, what would you do? <laughs> and he sort of responded vaguely to that, saying, you know, we're a public company. People make offers for public companies. I don't know what Boeing's plans are related to something like that. But, um, but I, you know, Spirit's obviously in a, t- a tough position here. The company was experiencing a lot of downturn related to the MAX being grounded. Then the pandemic happened. I think observers... Uh, expected that this was the year that they'd kind of shake all that off. Instead, they're still a mess. Their stock price sucks. Like they had to revise their projections to account for burning through cash related to this issue. Um, they received a total of about 280 million uh, between Airbus and Boeing uh, cash advances. So they have to pay those back. Mm-hmm. And they're planning to do that in 24 and 25, meaning the company really might not see the light of day. Uh, from an earnings standpoint, for several more years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the scenario, I think, that led one analyst to state that, quote, while the OEMs are never going to let spirit fail, it is now in a form of indentured servitude that will severely impact its future cash flow. So I don't know. I mean, Boeing pushed uh, spirit out of the nest, but maybe it's going to have to come home and live right. in spirits or Boeing's basement. I don't know. You know, sometimes <laughs> the kids come home. Sometimes. You got to welcome them back with open arms. What, you know, like with some encouragement to like get back out. Maybe there. get back. But who knows? I mean, like all these uh, analysts are like speculating. Will Boeing um, buy spirit back? It's not worth what it once was. I mean, maybe they could, uh, you know, incorporate that back into the fold to kind of keep it going. It's just such a, a key supplier for them. And in, in, at this point, like, what do they do? Well, they can't let it go down. No, they can't keep funneling money either. So I, yeah, I mean, uh, how long do you subsidize it before you're just like, you know what? We own you now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and we've mentioned this before a couple of weeks ago when this came up, uh, how the 737 is such a big deal for spirit, which makes them in Kansas. I mean, the company is making 70% of the aircraft's structure right? in, you know, half of its business. So it's a big deal. And Anna, that, uh, indentured servitude line just that- really stood out. That was from, uh, what's his name? Rob Stallard, I believe, from Vertical Research. He also said there are all sorts of concerns about captive companies and limited supply and stuff like that. 
that already uh, that's already what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Ben, your thoughts on sort of the amount of money that Boeing paid, which was 180 million plus the other 100 million from other suppliers, and then kind of where they where they're at in terms of viability. Well, Spirit, yeah, their you know their problems aren't aren't totally resolved yet either because there's multiple uh, law firms are circling uh, and seeking plaintiffs for class action lawsuits, mm-hmm. and these are essentially alleging that Spirit failed to disclose to the investors that it lacked effective production quality controls and that it uh, incorrectly installed the fittings on the fuselage and then. Uh, as a result of that, uh, it would have to develop a, kind of a new inspection and repair procedure to um, address these affected fuselages. Mm-hmm. And they haven't, uh, they did not do that. And they, and I guess they have not really, uh, or allegedly haven't done that. And they allegedly have not disclosed what type of negative financial impact is going to um, you know, come from all of this. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's already a huge monetary value assigned to this problem. Yeah. Like, could get even bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Anna, think of what we've seen with 3M with uh, acquisitions that they've had and potential liability as a result. Maybe this is the prevention from Boeing bringing Spirit in, is if there is actually any uh, liability. Maybe. Or, you know, it's just uh, a sign of the times where I hear anything lawyer related and I'm just like, ah, it doesn't matter. They're all crooks, anyways. When you first uh, sent this story over, David, mm-hmm. I read the headline really quickly, and I was like, "What did Spirit Airline do to their fuselages?" No. I was like, it's like I don't understand. <laughs> Not related. <laughs> what did they do to their planes, and why is Boeing helping them fix it? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, "We tried to fix it ourselves, and we kind of wrecked it." <laughs> they were just trying something new. Well, and that was uh, that was part of the um, crazy part of the story for me, and um, I believe we came up with it before, but like how it was just caught by some random employee that saw the cracking. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise all of these would have been in service. They, and I think that this has been going on for like a couple of years. Since like 2019. Yeah. So, uh, that's another thing. I mean, with your supply chain, just especially with anything in aerospace or anything mission critical, you just have to have that line of communication where if you change a process, you need to alert everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Just, and I mean, it comes down to, it can be as simple as a fitting. And if you do it a little bit differently, still let people know. All right. Our next most popular story. Elon Musk calls Ford's EV strategy smart. Ford is doing everything it can to turn the EV corner. And the Model E, the company's EV business unit, is under the gun. The carmaker recently announced that Model E lost some $722 million during the first quarter. The company expects full-year losses for Model E to reach $3 billion. Despite the flaming red ledgers, a rival is providing some words of encouragement. Tesla CEO Elon Musk sympathized with Ford and praised the company's long-term EV plans. On Twitter... Of course, Musk said margins are often stressed for new vehicle lines and praised Ford's overall EV strategy. As we said, he called it smart. Musk pointed to high demand for the Ford F-150 Lightning, one of the first full-size electric trucks to hit the U.S. market. So, Anna, is Elon Musk genuinely being supportive of Ford's strategy or just being the big EV bully? (laughs) Good job. Nice job, guys. 
You know, he's like rough, <laughs> rustling their hair. Ah, you tried, huh? You're trying. Well, that's the only reason this is news, right? Is because he just takes the most aggressively negative and arrogant perspective on so many things that you're like, oh, he, I mean, he's not really a complimenter. Yeah, so the he fact must that be. he like said something nice, you're like, oh, yeah, nice. Okay, neat. <laughs> um, he's got to be also massively jealous that he doesn't have the truck that he wants. Like Ford is beating him to the pickup game. He's got that cyber truck that's languishing in dev hell. I don't know. Sorry they're still, again. Yeah. Uh, they're still working on the giant windshield wiper. Yeah, the giant windshield wiper that keeps flying off. Um, problem. It, problem. Was, it was nice to see that he could at least acknowledge here that there are growing pains in any entry into the EV market. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at Tesla now, I think it, you know, it's got this immense market cap of more than $500 billion, which is outrageous. Its share price exceeded $300 at certain points in the last year. It's easy to forget about the company's ramp up and how long it took. The company's IPO was issued, I think, in 2010, and Tesla did not turn a profit until 2020. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and that's not a criticism of Tesla at all. That's just how it is, you know? And um, with a company like Ford, you know, they're coming in from a little bit different vantage point, but, you know, they're still having to overcome a lot of those uh, hurdles. So I think like, let's acknowledge, I guess that Musk is coming here from a place of courtesy. Um, <laughs> and, and also like he can pay compliments to anyone else in the auto industry because he has such a head start, you mm-hmm. know, and, and he has this insanely valuable company. And while I don't necessarily agree with the valuations that put Tesla's market cap at a figure that is more than the combined value of Toyota, Volkswagen, Daimler, GM and Ford combined. Mm. That is a fact. Seems excessive. Um, <laughs> then, you know, I, I just think he can afford to throw a charitable comment here and there. But um, because once Tesla got it right, like their rise was absolutely meteoric. Right. And so I think it's fair to acknowledge that losses now, even massive ones, are to be expected. <laughs> and um, I also think it's fair to anticipate that legacy automakers will get over that hump a lot faster you know um the technology is there the experience is there they're not necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel from a production and a dev standpoint Mm -hmm. the foundation has been laid from from you know for many years in in terms of you know there's just so much more access to like really solid suitable robust batteries i mean there's just a lot more you know in the win column for these companies that are starting out now to try to get into the ev game so i think for somebody like ford they're going to get there sooner than later in my opinion and it's nice that musk is at least acknowledging that they're they're kind of on the right track there right um ben do you think part of it for ford is that you know it is such they've seen such incredible losses of late that uh you know it's kind of odd that for a company like Ford, the best news they've seen in a while is a competitor saying, you know, you're trying. Yeah. I think, I think he was being genuine Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think he pointed out anything that's, you know, particularly um, super illuminating here. These are um, pretty standard stuff. When you make such a huge shift in your strategy, you can expect, um, you know, margins are going to be stressed for a long time, but you know, I think there are still some genuine concerns like uh, uh, electric was one of the first outlets to pick up on this uh, story about Musk's tweet. And they pointed out that, uh, you know, Ford's EV production volume is still a huge issue. Mm. And uh, the company has been dealing with, you know, multiple issues that have uh, caused delays, but they're still sticking to this kind of uh, global run rate of 600,000 
units uh, by the end of the year. And I think it's reasonable to have some doubts that they'll hit that hit that production number. Mm-hmm. Well, so CEO Jim Farley said that Model E's uh, maturation to second generation EV technology is going to help the unit break even by year's end. And it even uh, even though it expects to lose three billion dollars for the year, um, the first lesson learned from launching three EV models began three years ago was, quote, be careful where you compete. That's according to the CEO. He says we're not going to price just to gain mar- market share. And that was kind of seen <laughs> as a a shot to both Tesla and maybe GM because uh, they've both been cutting vehicle prices um, a lot this year. So it'll be interesting to see how Ford changes strategy. It's go to market strategy. Did Ford not also do that for, uh, but then they went back and then raised them or was that Tesla? That was Tesla. Yeah. See, <laughs> but I mean, he's not, he's not doing the same thing. No, he's not. Just listen he's to totally him. different. It's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our most popular story this week. Gen Z in manufacturing. Gen Z just wants to work differently. Gen Z is a hot topic. The oldest members of Gen Z will turn 26 this year, and some manufacturers have struggled to accommodate the youngest generation of workers. Combine that with misconceptions about Gen Z, like they just don't want to work hard, or they just want an easy way out. Well, in Gen Z in manufacturing, Nolan Beilstein interviewed Shay Alawashina, a 25-year-old employee at Siemens, who discussed his transition from an intern to full-time at Siemens, the aspect of the company that made him want to stay, the mindset of Gen Zers in manufacturing, and how manufacturers can adapt to attract more talent from a younger demographic. In the interview, Olawashina said it is important for him to do work that means something at the end of the day. Siemens also gave him a sense of ownership and impact in that what he was doing on a daily basis was important to people, not just at the company, but in the world. Managers empowered him to do more, to take initiative, and to speak up with ideas, and he always felt heard. When it comes to misconceptions like Gen Z laziness, Olawashina says his generation isn't looking for the easy way out. It's not that they don't want to work hard. They want to work differently. Anna, I was... First of all, encouraged that this was the most popular story on our website, just because this is a critical issue for nearly everybody that reads um, our publications. But I was also encouraged with some of the insights that um, came from Olawashina, just because it was, you know, sometimes we hear it in surveys, sometimes we hear it in reports and analysis, but I just enjoyed hearing it from a worker with boots on the ground as to what's working for him, why he likes it and what he's looking for. For sure. And I was really glad that people watched this because, um, you know, we obviously right now there's a worker shortage and it's the same one that preceded the pandemic. Um, only it's worse now. Mm-hmm. And every mouthpiece in the industry keeps stressing that businesses need to look to underrepresented groups And so this series, I think, looking at younger workers who have established themselves in our industry and really ask them why, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what got you here? What keeps you here? Perhaps more importantly, um, I think that's really important. I'm glad that people um, I I was actually surprised that this performed so well this week and that we got so much engagement with it because, you know, you see, I don't know, you see a lot of eye rolling in the industry about 
And maybe part of it was curiosity. Maybe people were clicking on mm-hmm. it to roll their eyes. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to be angry about this. About this, right. Yeah. But um, I would highly encourage you to check this out if you haven't. I think um, I think manufacturing businesses need to take this issue seriously. Instead of pointing to those really worn out tropes, like you mentioned, laziness, entitlement, rolling their eyes over what this group of workers are looking for, instead to really look at the data and maybe turn a microscope onto their own businesses and see what they can be doing better. Because I hear a lot of lip service on this topic. A lot of um, people kind of shrugging their shoulders, um, you know, to me, there's a lot of companies that are wasting time adjusting mm-hmm. because they just throw up their hands and say, well, we can't do that. You know, you're not um, benefiting your business just trying to prove a point about that. Um, I, I think we know that manufacturing is not built to support some of the demands that the younger workers have. And I'm talking about hybrid work, mm-hmm. flexibility, things like that. You see people say, like, our business cannot support that. So what do we do? You know, um, I'm glad that he spoke to things like engagement, empowerment, feeling like you make a difference, feeling yeah. like you have a role where you can make decisions and and move the company in a certain direction, have a scope of like what equals success, right? Um, that's that's a good way for people to have, I think internally in a manufacturing company, have a goal to set for themselves from an HR standpoint. Like how do we achieve this for our workforce? Um, I've seen some companies who are taking concrete steps to ensure that Gen Z want to come work for them. Sometimes it's a lot of investment. I've seen companies like completely overhaul their headquarters to make it more modern and Mm -hmm. interesting, even move their buildings to a downtown area. um, So they're closer to amenities and cities they are putting in gyms they are putting in daycare centers, things like that. But um, I think for others, it's just trying to be as flexible as possible. And I know that, you know, I, you know, I mentioned the the challenge that manufacturing has with its shift based work and trying to address those concerns for younger workers. And that concern, I think, has moved a little bit into every generation is now feeling a little bit more empowered to ask for that. Like, hey, I want to work from home two days a week or I want to, you know, um, there are ways to do that in manufacturing, I think, with split shifts and shift sharing and job sharing part time. You can offer four tens like mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that I think manufacturers need to look at. Um, you know, we all know the benefits of a good like break room snack and catered lunch every once in a while. But but like outside of that there, you know, there's no hard costs around like giving people uh, the encouragement to be empowered and make choices and not just like stick them in a funnel somewhere mm-hmm. where they feel like they have no impact on the company. That's leadership needing to share with these people. Like, here's our strategy. Here's what we're trying to do. What can you do to help us get there? And let's come up with a plan for that. And so I think like, um, I, you know, no one I think is going to try to do more of these. Yeah. I think the, the message is really important. I'm glad people are tuning in. Yeah. Uh, Nolan does plan on doing more of these. And if anyone listening or watching us, has workers that are in that Gen Z category that would potentially be a good interview for the series. He wants to talk to him. So please reach out to him at uh, Nolan at IN.com. Um, just talking about Gen Z workers. I think it'd be a really good opportunity. Um, one thing I really liked about this is it, uh, it talks about employee buy-in and sort of a sense of self self worth. Um, and Ben, I think that's something that is sometimes lost on manufacturing workers all the way from quality control to on the assembly line. You know, there used to be a real sense of pride of like, we're helping build America for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. And I mean, um, to like, uh, 
fit and a stereotype. I have another example of something from my life. Um, because when I was working in manufacturing, I had to sort these things called domes, right? They were just tiny little silicone domes. <laughs> and I sorted thousands of them. And I was just like, I don't understand why anybody cares about these little domes. And then finally, someone told me like, they're in every soap dispenser. So when mm -hmm. you push it, it's like, uh, it creates the suction that pulls the soap out. Yeah. And after that, I was just like, I hated it, you know, just a little less. Because I was <laughs> like, wow, this is horrible, but at least people can clean their hands. And I think that's something that's been lost in manufacturing, where people have that sense of like, even though I'm working on this very small part in manufacturing, that I am contributing to a greater good. Yeah, and maybe the older generations in manufacturing, you know, they still retain a lot of that pride in what they're doing, and they can get younger generations like on board with the domes. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We, we're always going to need domes. Yeah, we can turn. Yeah, we can turn you on to domes. Um, but like, I think this interview was great, mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, Oluwashina made. Uh, he was really well spoken and made a lot of good points. And what really stood out to me was uh, talking about kind of a lack of guidance if there's a you know if there's a primary complaint mm -hmm. among uh gen z in manufacturing he said that might be it and i think that when you're first starting out in any field or industry there's um it's easy to get lost or feel a little helpless so it's really helpful to have that kind of guidance and that sort of assurance that there's really no dumb questions mm -hmm. and and i think that can really build confidence and foster healthy, you know, healthy work relationships between employees from different generations. So, um, yeah, I, I like this interview. Mm -hmm. I hope it turns into kind of a lengthy interview series. I would like to see more. And there are always going to be bad workers at every facility, but I'm surprised. And maybe it's a, maybe it's because we're part of the generational shift, right? Mm -hmm. Like we used to see it all the time, um, where it was our generation being blamed, but now it's, uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, it's just weird that any bad worker that I hear a story about anecdotally, they're just like Gen Z, man. I'm like, are you even sure? He's probably 45. It, every, I feel like this happens every time. There's a, whatever the youngest generation is. Cause it used to be like millennials. Ugh. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, whatever is the youngest generation, they are the worst one in the eyes of everyone else. And it's really unfair. Uh, Jesse has uh, another comment for us. She says that community at work is so important now. We spend so much time at work. We want to be a part of something instead of just punching a clock. And Jesse, I couldn't agree more. Some of the other, um, some of the other things that I took from the interview um, that he had mentioned, he was always encouraged to ask a lot of questions. He also talked about the advancement and use of technology at work. Learning is just easier these days. And maybe that's, Maybe that's what causes that sort of divide because knowledge is so much easier to come by that, um, you know, maybe there's an expectation that you're supposed to learn on your own rather than encouraging, you know, fostering sort of a almost apprentice type environment. Um, things are easier now than they were for previous generations. <laughs> Do you guys think that's part of the problem? Uh, like which problem? Well, I mean, in terms of the, uh, like fostering, like, uh, training, I guess part of training where like, uh, the knowledge is so accessible and at everybody's fingertips and from devices that maybe there isn't such a concern to like pass that tribal knowledge on because it's like an expectation that you're going to want to do it your way. 
Anyways, I don't know. Oh, maybe. I mean, I, you know, I think the tribal knowledge thing has always been a problem. But yeah, to your point, maybe it's uh, people assume like, oh, it's covered. Mm-hmm. I don't, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what why there is the divide. Like, mm-hmm. is it um, because it's always just chalked up to attitude, right? Like uh, they just don't want to learn. But I mean, I think that there were really good examples here of how it worked for the specific worker. Yeah. Um, I, I do think and he reiterated that deep down, everyone wants to work hard and be the best that they can be. Um, but they do that the way that they know how. And mm-hmm. so things need to evolve accordingly. Uh, Gen Z is also looking to leverage technology to their advantage. Things that we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Um, he also mentioned mentorship programs. One thing that I found very interesting, he's already a mentor and he's 25, 26. And he is encouraged by seeing, you know, people want people their age and of their demographic, giving them guidance, you know, in terms of building that community. And I thought it was really encouraging that he was already a mentor for people, you know, coming into the company. Um, You want to see a culture where managers and young people can interact, not necessarily a hierarchy. And I guess maybe because we're a part of the, um, community, the interaction where there is no real like crazy hierarchy. I guess I sometimes lose sight of how much that is in play. It's so many other places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like, what are you doing talking to me? Yeah. yeah. You're just, just a guy on the line. Real drag. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully more to come with this series. And before we move on to, in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm David Manti with Industrial Equipment News. Selecting the right hoses to keep your workers safe and facilities operational is crucial. But not all hoses are created equal. So to help us work it out, Doug Nordstrom, hose product manager at Swagelock, is going to help us figure it out. Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Central. Please join us live. So Doug, give us a little bit of what people could expect to learn from this webinar in May. Yeah, so we always want to make sure we educate our hose users to select the right hose for a job uh, because an improperly selected hose can be very dangerous for operators, people around the hose. It can lead to excessive downtime and can be a source of of excessive cost for a particular operation. Well, we certainly don't want that. So please register now to join us live Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Central. We'll see you there. And we're back. And a reminder to join us Tuesday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Mastering host selection in your facility. Register now. There's a link in the live chat and a link below in the description. Hope to see you there. Ask some questions. Hassle me. Ask me about my trials and tribulations on Facebook Marketplace selling goods that have no value to anybody. All right. My In Case You Missed It this week. A story that maybe wasn't as popular on the website, but could stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I chose seaborne scrap. Uh, seaborne scrap fires are piling up. So the NTSB last Thursday came out with a report saying that lithium-ion batteries and other possible ignition sources are creating a fire safety risk when scrap metals are being transported. Scrap metal is typically deemed non-hazardous, but we're still seeing more and more of these fires. For example, on May 23rd, 2022, the Daisy May was towing a scrap metal barge north in Delaware uh, Delaware Bay when a fire broke out on board. The fire burned for about 26 hours and it was so hot that molten metal was leaking out of the ship. The Daisy May wasn't an anomaly, but rather a part of a growing concern. 
In 2022, nearly 400 waste and recycling facility fires were reported in the U.S. and Canada. That's the highest number ever since Fire Rover, a fire suppression company, started tracking these problems in 2016. According to the NTSB, these fires could be caused by a number of issues. The ignition kind of seems straightforward, right? A bunch of metal cargo is piled on top of each other. It shifts, sparks, and ignites something combustible, like improperly prepared vehicles that haven't been properly drained of fluids or damaged lithium-ion batteries. The NTSB says these scrap metal piles need to be cleaned up and better inspected before they're loaded onto vessels, because once they get on the vessels... It's kind of hard for the crew to inspect the cargo or really do anything about it because they're towing it. You know, these are like overflowing mm-hmm. with scrap metal um, and being pulled at quite a distance behind. Qualified cargo surveying <clears throat> surveying personnel can help limit limit hazardous combustible material by watching if it is <clears throat> by watching it as it is loaded onto these vessels. And the NTSB also recommends using thermal imagery to identify hotspots in scrap metal cargo at shoreside facilities. Now, that was a really long summation of the story. Basically, it all comes down to making sure that you have the right tools in place and the right human resources to do the job. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. Re- I mean, especially now we've been talking about uh, cost-cutting measures that uh, many companies are going through. And sometimes you don't realize the implication of people that you're losing. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure these scrapyards didn't really think much about, uh, we're going to cut the guy that looks at the junk while we put the junk on the boat. And, uh, you know, I bet something like a thermal imager is rather expensive. So they don't think that they need thermal imagery to look at their junk while they put the junk on the boat. But these are things that could you know, prevent multi-million dollar fires and problems that could potentially cause a lot of pollution. Um, And I don't know if you had a chance to check out this story, but uh, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, it would be nice if we had data going back further than 2016. Uh, But I, fair point. I mean, the point is made that this is like obviously happening way too much and we may see more of this as lithium ion batteries are, becoming more prevalent in automotive. Mm-hmm. So yes, I agree with you. I mean, there are tools out there that exist. I think that those um, thermal imagers are um, going down in cost actually, and they're becoming easier to use for just like a, a a person that you might hire off the street. Like the training curve is pretty quick on those these days. Yeah. Aren't there some are that like plug into your cell phone? Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, they're really uh, user friendly now. Um, the, the companies that make those are, are doing that by design. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh yeah, get some. <laughs> well, and really, that was what, Ben, what drew me to the story initially was I thought it was going to be a huge lithium-ion battery story. I thought that these fires were going to be caused by an increase in lithium batteries in scrap. But it was really just that, no, we're just kind of taking care of it improperly and transporting it improperly. Mm-hmm. And so, to Anna's point, it could potentially, they don't come up with a fix they could potentially have a bigger problem on their hands once they have larger and more batteries on board. I think we talked about something similar with this before with like uh, uh, EV battery recycling. Yeah. um, That the infrastructure around uh, electric vehicles is possibly kind of developing at a different pace than the overall EV market, Mm -hmm. right? And this is uh, kind of another example of that. But whereas, you know, you know, an issue with recycling, maybe there's a, a, a backlog or something, you know, yeah. but uh, it's, this is, this is far more alarming. Yeah. Uh, I don't 
to I don't boat very often, but when I am on a boat, <laughs> I don't want it to start on fire. Yeah. Like that's pretty top top of the list for me. That's like boating 101. Yeah. Fire's bad. I'm going to take you on a really nice scrap metal boat tour. <laughs> I think you'd like it. Bring yeah, bring your batteries. We're going on a boat ride, right? Did you guys hear we're going oh, on a? Oh, it's full of scrap metal. I forgot to tell you. That. We're going on a company booze cruise. Great. Oh no, it's on a scrap metal barge. Whoa, is our company okay? <laughs> Anna, what is your in case you missed it this week? Yeah, so I thought I would bring y'all up to speed on the Hyundai and Kia saga because we've covered it so many um, times in the past about the vehicles that are getting stolen. Uh, consistently because TikTok. Yeah. And um, just so just to put you all at ease, uh, the Hyundai and Kia thefts are continuing to rise despite the security fix that was issued by the company a few months back. So um, the AP gathered some data from seven U.S. cities uh, to show the number of Hyundai and Kia thefts. <clears throat> and they said it's still growing despite the company's efforts to fix this glitch. Um, <clears throat> 8.3 million vehicles are in play here. Ones that are made um, because of their design are relatively easy to, to steal. Um, in the article, they interviewed Brian O'Hara, who's the police chief of Minneapolis. And he said the scope of the problem is only expanding and is exponentially worse than it has been in the past. We have some weeks where nearly as many Kias and Hyundais are stolen in a week as had previously been stolen in a year. Um, I don't know if any of you noticed, but like New York had um, recently offered owners of these Hyundais and Kias, I think Apple Air tags to track their vehicles if they were stolen. Yeah. That's not a good idea. That's no. Yeah. And it's not like preventative at all. Mm-hmm. No. It just it's like, just like when it is stolen, when it hopefully is stolen. we can find it better. Yeah. Exactly. You are a vigilante now. Here's where you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Use your phone to track. <laughs> you'll find it at this um, metal yeah. scrap metal barge. In, yeah. yeah. Be uh, prepared for anything. Be prepared for a fire. <laughs> Uh, but but according to TikTok, these TikTok videos, you can steal these vehicles with as little as a screwdriver and a USB cable. It's apparently very easy to do. Mm-hmm. So um, unfortunately, the problem here is so um, Hyundai and Kia took forever to implement this fix. As we know, this started in like 2020. These vehicles started to be stolen. Um, and now the problem, I think, is that the rollout is too slow. Um, the automaker is uh, handling, I think they said, about 6,000 a day um, of 8.3 million. They're really having trouble tracking people down. Mm. As we know, um, anytime a vehicle's recalled, and especially an older vehicle, it's really hard to find the people because of that, you know, consumer uh, to consumer supply chain that happens after you buy a car and then you sell it wherever you want. And, um, and, you know, people don't, people move. I mean, these cars are old. So, a uh, lot of problems still on this front. I don't know what took so long for the fix. And that was what I think we've all been very critical of um, since the beginning here is why did it take so long? And now that they have it, it's just, it's too slow Yeah. <laughs> in the rollout. And so there's like nothing, you know, nothing is fixed. I mean, there's still, they still have this tremendous problem. These Kias and Hyundais, you know, there's still an insurance issue. People don't want to insure them because- yeah. They're so easy to steal. And so um, this, I I wonder, and I've speculated on this before, but I wonder what the fallout will be from a sales standpoint for Hyundai and Kia. If people are just buying vehicles that they can buy right now, or if there has been some reputational damage on the company at this point as people see this play out, I don't know. 
I think there has to be reputational damage. And the fact that they're fixing 6,000 a day, that doesn't sound encouraging. Um, but, um, and combine that with the fact that municipalities all over the nation are suing the companies mm-hmm. now. Um, I guess this is a good companion with the um, Generac story that we were doing earlier, right? Because it also reminds me of, uh, inf- you know, not inf- uh, the inflator problem with... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Takata? Yeah, the Takata airbag problem where, you know, at some point, sure, like only five fingers were crushed, and, but there's 300,000 units out there. When you get start getting reports of this, mm-hmm. you need to take them all seriously. And I get it because... These manufacturers are probably getting complaints all the time. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of people with a lot of a lot of complaints out there. But uh, I don't know. It's just you need to have a way of vetting the house the severity of them, so that way you don't. Would you say eight point three million of these are on the road? Mm-hmm. It's uh, you need to uh, Ben. You need to get after it before you have nearly ten million cars on the road that need fix. Yeah, and I. I mean, I sympathize with these automakers. This is a kind of a nightmare scenario and definitely doesn't seem like something they ever foresaw happening. Right. Um, it's kind of a, I mean, it's sort of amazing that people even discovered this flaw in the first place. I'm not sure, you know, how they did it, but it's it's a huge issue. And uh, yeah, I think to your point uh, earlier, it's, it's a, it's, um, a massive uh, reputational thing them at this point it's it's kind of you know amazing to think or you know difficult to think how they're going to kind of find their way back yeah on this mm-hmm. um i think there's still demand for those vehicles but you know when i see like the new a new like uh kia or electric you know driving around town i always think well i mean how much confidence does, oh yeah does this person have in this vehicle like, uh, I mean, it's not every car that you're following, but when I see a Kia in particular, I'm like, what if that's stolen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Ben, what is your, in case you missed it this week? Mine is Florida might build roads out of radioactive material. Um, Florida lawmakers have proposed a bill that would allow the state to use phosphogypsum, which is an industrial byproduct from the fertilizer industry, as a material for building roads. Uh, industrial byproducts have been used for uh, before for creating pavement aggregates, uh, but there's certain properties of phosphogypsum that are kind of setting off alarms, mm-hmm. mainly that it's radioactive. <laughs> that's, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bad one. That's that's a bad one. Okay. Yeah, that yep. would, yeah. Um, and of course, so there are... Uh, you know, there are opponents to this. They say uh, this is there are environmental impacts, potential environmental impacts, and then there's also uh, you know, uh, potential risks to road crews. Yeah. You know, they could be exposed to a lot more radiation than normal. Uh, uh, and so, and and of course, the Fertilizer Institute, which you would think they would uh, come to the defense here, but they 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 said uh, this. This could be used and it could be done um, safely with, you know, without, you know, unacceptable exposure to uh, to workers and radioactivity. I guess, you know, when I was going through this story, I, I thought, um, you know, it's pretty easy to gang up on Florida a lot. People do it. <laughs> yeah. And oftentimes it's kind of funny, but I really sympathize with them on this issue. You know, having your state dotted 
with these massive piles of radioactive waste is a huge bummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so any potential opportunity to put that waste to good use must seem like really attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just really hope that this proposal isn't kind of rammed through because it's so important to really carefully uh, examine any potential issues yeah. with this. Um, and I mean, working on a road crew, that's already dangerous enough Yeah, without being radiated. Yeah, without extremely hazardous materials. Right. But all these valid concerns aside, I, I was just kind of, I still can't figure it out, but would these roads glow? <laughs> Like, is that, I don't know. Is that a possibility? I mean, uh, see, now you're, I mean, at least you're getting into the pros and cons. You're not yeah, all is that, here. Is that a benefit or a concern? I mean, I don't think you need that sort of light pollution on top of, you know, the radioactive waste. Right. But I mean, that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'll, you can kill the headlights, that's cool. Oh, well, I'm, you're saving, you're saving on battery. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, you know, I was kind of surprised with, sort of the tone that some people took on this one, such as uh, more boogeyman scare tactics. Good grief. You're not sleeping in a sarcophagus made of the material <laughs> seemed a little extreme to me, though. I do appreciate the use of sarcophagus and not, oh, a, yeah. and not a coffin, but I just don't understand. This seems like a really good idea. And to Ben's point, one that could be done safely with relatively little additional development so I don't understand why we're potentially putting radioactive roads out there um, because we're talking about solving a lot of problems and maybe just adjust it a little bit so that way it doesn't radiate crews or people stuck in traffic. Yeah. And like I thought traditionally um, what you did with radioactive waste is you like put it in the container and buried it, not like spread it out everywhere where everyone is. Yeah. So it, that is confusing to me. Um, also, uh, to me, the the runoff situation is a little scary. I know you mentioned water quality, and to me, that would be like a, an ongoing concern because you would not find out. I mean, maybe we know now how bad it would be. It could be really bad, and it could be something that you don't find out the true impact of until you have contaminated a bunch of local waterways or people's wells and all this stuff. Like it could be not good. I mean, I don't know. I've never, I'm not a, I'm no road scientist, <laughs> but um, I'm no road scholar. Sorry. Oh man. Yes. I mean, it was right there. I know. And yeah. I missed it the first time I went back for it though. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it just seems like a bit of a reach. I don't know. It doesn't seem necessary. Like you said, I mean, there's an awful lot of shoreline. In yeah. Florida, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, to you, you have to take that into consideration, and uh, yeah, again, radioactive material. I would also like to stress that any application that reuses or upcycles or recycles industrial byproducts, I'm in favor for, as long as it's done safely and not add as a threat to our water or people. I don't, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's a big ask. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I don't see how something like this even comes to being a bill, you know, where mm-hmm. I feel like that's one. Uh, I don't know exactly what they mean, but when they're like, it's getting kicked around at the committee level, I feel like this is something that should get kicked around at a committee level yeah. before what like someone just raises their hand and they're like, what do you mean? Kind of radioactive. Yeah. I think using this material in, um, you know, in, in roads is still banned at a federal level by the EPA. Um, 
But what this bill is going to do is give them about a year to to study it and and see if it's feasible, mm. and then okay. they can kind of present a case to the the EPA, and they can certainly you know, um, you know, present kind of a not a, for lack of a better word a challenge to the rules, and 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 maybe the EPA will sign off after what they see here. Mm. I just hope that it's thorough enough because it sounds a little scary. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, whether or not the idea of a glowing road sounds cool, you know. I mean, is a glowing road enough of a draw to make you drive on a radioactive road? Gosh, you know, maybe I don't once? Know. Yeah, if the car if the car can maybe keep it out and uh but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to return to lead cars. That's the only solution here. All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, let's go through our final thoughts. Anna, what's your final thought this week? Let's go through them. Um, it's Teacher Appreciation Week, and uh, I just want to say that if you can, if you got a kid that's in school system or that age, or even if you don't, um, teachers are killing it, and we've had such wonderful teachers in the lives of our kids, and just taking the opportunity to say thank you, do something nice for them. Even if next week when you hear this and this airs in the newsletter, it, you are late for Teacher Appreciation Week. To appreciation week you can still celebrate it retroactively yeah. you can still send a hershey bar and a little note i think that's a nice thing for people to do yeah i mean or even the apple right does the apple still play i don't know if the apple plays you could try it i mean were they gonna just say no yeah they're thrown back in your they face just like push it back and then, yeah. out of here yeah i feel like my priorities are a little out of whack now is it like too late to just change my final thought to also teacher week no i definitely was going to also <laughs> just like All you know three, what? Yep. yeah <laughs> we have great teachers we're appreciative of them i apologize for not having a gift sooner <laughs> uh no my final thought is uh i also just want to talk about the glory of overnight oats <laughs> look into it <laughs> Not what I was expecting. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's we're just changing gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Teachers are great, possibly and, better. Overnight yep. oats are where it's at, and you can cook them ahead of time. I mean, there's no, there's no yeah. cooking involved. Like just a real chance to get creative with your. Uh, I mean, I started because I had an abundance of honey, and I'm just, I'm just constantly, constantly appreciative, and oh. I will make overnight oats for the teachers. Okay. Is that a weird thing? Like to hand them like a, a Tupperware container? Yes. Of Okay. A hundred percent. All right. I won't do that. Do Eat not do oats. that. Yeah. <laughs> I cooked them overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> They've been in my fridge for a real long time. I sprung for pecans. <laughs> so once they, so I keep saying cook, but obviously they just like uh, sprout in there's milk soap. or whatever. Yeah, there's soap. So they soak, and then in the the morning, you eat them cold, or do you heat yeah, them up? Yeah, eat them cold. Can you heat them up? Uh, I actually probably. It's kind of just. I mean, I'm sure you can. I haven't because it's all about the easy use. You know, it's just you eat it right out of the container that they have uh, soaked in. So it just ta- it doesn't taste better. It is easier. I think it does. Uh, I think it kind of tastes better. I mean, it's a different experience. Um, <laughs> be- then you know, like the one thing I like about it is that. They're cold and can be consumed quickly by children. Yeah. Whereas if you've ever tried to make oatmeal for uh, for children in the morning, um, sometimes your morning doesn't have like that 10 minute budget to cook them to molten levels. 
hot yeah, uh, and then let them cool with enough time in order to eat them. Um, but I mean, I understand the ridiculous nature of my final thought, given your final thoughts. <laughs> no, no, no. It was no. too I, late I mean, to pivot. No, it's okay. <laughs> like, I, you know, I like oatmeal and I, for somebody like me, that's just looking for a different experience. <laughs> I mean, and that was really, I think yeah. it's, it sounds like a fun sleepover activity. <laughs> yeah. Those kids are going to be so excited. I can't oh, wait. I thought, <laughs> I thought we were talking an adult sleepover where it's just like, Either or. We're yeah. all going to hang out at the office, do an overnight, and make oats. Yeah. It's gonna and then we're going to stay here mm-hmm. and wait for the oats. Yeah. Just like we're going to watch the oats soak. Um, but no, as uh, someone who likes oatmeal, yeah. No, I think you would. Um, I enjoy them as much, if not more, as than oatmeal. And I just apologize for the inconsequential nature of my final thought. Munson, what do you got for us? Oh. Even more inconsequential. <laughs> Wait till you hear this. Yeah. No, the, the Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom comes out tomorrow and I'm psyched. I, <laughs> I can't remember ever yes. being this psyched for a video game. And this probably sounds kind of lame, but I actually took the day off tomorrow so I could just play the crap. You took a video game personal day? I did. That's as good as good any for, other. Good for you, Ben. Yeah. It's about understanding what you enjoy mm-hmm. and finding time for yourself, yeah. right? Yep. I'm letting my uh, daughter take the day off too so we can play together. That's awesome. Sorry, teachers. Uh, this <laughs> is a really, this is turning into a terrible thing right now. Hey, light, yeah. light, lighter no, load. Lighter yeah, load yeah. Yeah. tomorrow. Teacher you, appreciation. Yeah. yeah. One less person. Yeah. One less kid to worry about tomorrow. Um, uh, and hopefully we didn't like call her in sick or something. And I just kind of blew the whole thing. Blew the cover. Uh, <laughs> but Yeah. Very excited. That sounds like an awesome day. Did you guys get like all the prime snacks? Did you get some overnight oats to have while you're <laughs> playing the game or? No. No. <laughs> I mean, you get, you got the rest of the day. Like, you, I feel yeah, pretty you stupid now. Yeah. He's got a stockpile. Initiate yeah. the process tonight, I think, and they'll be ready tomorrow. Is that how it works? Like yes. overnight? They, okay. I think, <laughs> I think there are a lot of possibilities out there, but, uh, you know, spending some time with your kid on your day off, playing a game i think that's a great idea man it's a good reminder people need to do it more often all right well. i think we lost every listener at overnight oats and <laughs> <laughs> yeah no one's hearing no about one, Zelda. No one they're just like anywhere. and then david started talking about oats <laughs> and he was just reaching so i you know i didn't catch him uh messing up the clothes this time so uh let's jump into that before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Ben, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Subscribe to us on YouTube at IN Magazine so you can join us live. All right, for Ben Munson and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.